0: everybody. So, growing up in a historic congregation, you know, I think that for people here, it feels pretty natural, right? There's the sense that every church has, like, two organs, pews, and stained glass. And the reality is that lots of Unitarian Universalist congregations were built in the 1950s, in 60s, and uh, have a more sort of modern, abstract look about them. And for children and youth and adults who sort of engage in faith development in those spaces, it can be a little bit mind-blowing that there are Unitarian Universalists whose context for their faith looks more like this. and. Uh, So when I told people in Annapolis that I I grew up in in a congregation that Olympia Brown served in Racine, Wisconsin, and that is named after her, it's Olympia Brown UU Church, or OBUC, because we can't say no to acronyms, Um, that we had a bust of her, a stone bust at the back of the congregation, but we also had uh, what I believe is a replica of her desk but then an actual, her actual Bible sort of under plexiglass at the back of the congregation. And when I tell you use that, there's, what? what? That's like very close to a relic, and it makes people uncomfortable. But for me, it was a, a real sense of connection. And for lots of other children and youth growing up in that congregation, it gave us a sense that sort of we had a, an anchor, a local hero, who was ours to claim. Uh, There's even an elementary school named after Olympia Brown in our hometown, which is kind of, outside of New England, it's pretty rare that you find schools and things like that named after Unitarian or Universalist ministers. And uh, our history, was all around us. In fact, our director of religious education actually dressed up as Olympia Brown probably at least like once a year and would like retell stories dressed as Olympia Brown. And in fact, when I was there, one of the elders of our congregation, her name was Joanne Rowan, she was in her 90s uh, when I was in high school, and Joanne remembered seeing Olympia Brown as a little girl. Mm-hmm. She remembered seeing the bun at the back of her head when Olympia Brown visited the congregation there, where she was moving back and forth between Racine and Baltimore at the end of her life. And so I, I feel pretty connected to Olympia Brown's legacy. She's a, our, our, Her claim to fame that our congregation was so proud of it was that she was the first woman ordained by her denomination in the United States which is kind of a big deal, I think. And so as I have started it, when I went to seminary and as an adult and started reevaluating her legacy, some of the sort of glamor fell away a little bit. Especially when I found out that she might not have been the first woman ordained by her denomination in the United States. That's a toughie when you're really into, when you have a big claim to fame and it falls away. And uh, I thought about things like the limits of uh, the suffrage, the women's suffrage movement that she was a part of. The limits of a movement that was almost exclusively the work of white women. I had to reevaluate her legacy. And the the last piece that I really reevaluated was how awfully lonely it must have been as a woman in formation to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, I am so blessed to have so many women in ministry who support me and mentor me and journey with me. And I think about how lonely it is to be a pioneer. And so today, when I think about Olympia Brown, what I really think about is how in the face of loneliness, and detractors and what I today would call haters. What does it mean to really devote yourself to your faith and to the work of justice? What does it really mean to devote your life to something? And I think about She was one of the only sort of original suffragettes who actually voted. And I think about that sense of the full devoting the full span of your life to your faith and to the work of justice. And I really for me, that's really how I see her legacy today, for myself and for other Unitarian Universalists is to ask yourself what it means to devote your life, in spite of what anyone else might say, to the work of your faith. Thank
1: you. You know, these past few weeks, I've been pulling books off of the shelves, and I'm realizing um, that one of the resources of our congregation is actually my library, which sits up in my study. And I want to tell you, Some people have asked if they could look at this or borrow that and the answer is yes Um, Come up and talk to me and we can see what's up Um, but it happens that um, This little volume of Unitarian and Universalist women ministers um, was published by the historical society the Unitarian Universalist Historical and Heritage Society was published in 75 and republished in 85 and it has a biography of all of the women who were in our uh, ministers in our movement um, up until that period? This um, volume on Unitarian Universalist women and social reform between 1776 and eight, 1936, uh, standing before us again, has um, documents by and biographical notes about uh, the important women who have been leaders of the social movements in the Unitarian Universalist Universalists, and Uta- well they weren't in the Unitarian Universalists in 1936, but uh, although there were a few congregations, including ours in 1935, became both. Um, but uh, anyway, th- this is a, a, a rich volume, as is this, um, Ernest Cassara's book, um, and these again, it's uh, the history of Universalism, but told through primary documents. Um, and if anybody ever wanted to borrow any of these or any of the hundreds of books that are in my room just give me a yell and we can look at it together I have office hours every week Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday from Monday from 1 to 3 at 1 to 4, Wednesday from 4 to 7 and Saturday from 11 to 1 Olympia Brown in 1874 wrote an article in the Universalist Repository Um, about the higher education of women. And I'm going to read just a couple of paragraphs. A good character is composite in its nature. It is made up of a combination of tastes, aspirations, virtues, gained by the experience of a lifetime all bound together in one. A noble character is formed not of a single traffic trickling rill, pure and bright though it may be, but of many qualities combined. That energy which today which takes its rise among the rough and rugged experiences of primitive societies and ever presses on, gathering new life with every trial, that fragility, excuse me, that frugality born of want, that integrity which is nurtured in the exact world of business, that sweet charity begotten of a large knowledge of human frailty, that gentle trustfulness acquired by basking in the sunshine of Christian love. All these and many more are the tributary streams which unite to form the noble character which shall be earnest and efficient in the work of the world, bearing the burdens of life without complaining itself a thing of beauty, lending blessedness to every scene until at last it mingles itself with that ocean of truth and love, the heart of God. We seek for women the higher education which shall give them such a composite, many-sided, symmetrical Christian character, an education which shall give them the executive ability of the businessman, the intellectual acumen of the scholar, the comprehensive thought of the philosopher, the prophetic vision of the seer, and all adorned and glorified by those graces, faith, hope, and charity. It remains for us to consider the kind of education which will secure to women those qualities which most ennoble human character. She died in Baltimore in 1926 at the age of 91. She had given her life to the cause of women's suffrage and her beloved faith, universalism. That last 12 years of her life, she lived during the school year with her daughter Gwendolyn who taught classics at the Bryn Mawr School and she was a member of our predecessor congregation the Second Universalist Society of Baltimore. According to her obituary in The Baltimore Sun, I quote, perhaps no phase of her life better exemplified her vitality and intellectual independence than the mental discomfort she succeeded in arousing between her 80th and 90th birthdays among conservatively-minded Baltimoreans. End quote. Her name is painted on the wall of the Hamilton Room, just over there. Education was always important to Asa and LaFia Brown, her parents. When they moved from the Universalist hotbed of Vermont out to Prairie Ronde, Michigan, just about 20 miles southwest of Kalamazoo, They so believed in education that they built a school on their farm and then Asa Brown went uh, around to all the farms in the area to recruit children to come to the school and parents to help pay for the uh, hiring of a teacher. Within a couple of years, the township took on public education as its responsibility, and one wonders if it might have happened without the Browns. Olympia was the first of four children. She, upon graduation from that school, went to Mount Holyoke College seeking a higher education, and she was so disappointed in the feminine education that she received. She felt that that school was more of a finishing school than an academic institution with rigor. And so she was very pleased when she was able to get admitted to Antioch College, where Horace Mann was running things. And she had such a good experience at Antioch that the family left Michigan, moved to Ohio, so that all of the children would be able to be there to go to Antioch and to support each other in their education and Olympia at the end of her Bachelor of Arts at Antioch was convinced that she was called to the ministry and that she was called therefore to get a Bachelor of Divinity. She um, had to consider where she might go and she Communicated with the Unitarians at Meadville Seminary in Pennsylvania, and they said it was too great an experiment to admit women in 1861. Here we go. She went, she applied to Oberlin, um, which had entirely admitted women, but in 1861 women were allowed to take classes, but were not allowed to participate in public exercise of worship, which the men were uh, allowed to do as a part of their formation. And so she ended up not going to Overland. But she approached the Universalists at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, way north in New York, and Ebenezer Fisher, told her that he did not think women are called to the ministry. But he said, I leave that between you and the great head of the church. And Olympia said, that is exactly where it should be left. <laughs> she writes, when I arrived, I was told I had not been expected and that Mr. Fisher had said I would not come as he had written so discouragingly to me. I, had, I have supposed that his discouragement was my encouragement. When she... Uh, th- this is a, a, a note from her daughter, Gwendolyn Brown-Willis, and I want to share it with you. The ministry was the first objective of her life, since in her youthful enthusiasm she believed that freedom of religion, thought, and the liberal church would supply the groundwork for all other freedoms. Her difficulties and disillusionments in this field were numerous, that she would rise, superior to such difficulties and disillusionment, was the consequence of the hopefulness and courage with which she was richly endowed. When she graduated from St. Lawrence, she uh, was indeed ordained, and it was recognized by the local uh, association of congregations, which is why we talk about that specialness of her ordination, even though there were people before her who had been ordained. But she went to a parish that was in trouble, and if you read her writing, she will talk about the fact that women only got lousy parishes. That's the rule. If they're successful, a man gets it, and if they're about to close, well, maybe we'll try a woman. But she went to Weymouth Landing, Massachusetts, And it was at Weymouth Landing that she became acquainted with the organized women's rights movement, including Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone, among others. It was in that context that she decided that she needed to do something for women's suffrage. And her congregation gave her a four-month paid leave of absence in the summer of 1867 to go to Kansas, where there was a vote about to happen about women's suffrage in the state of Kansas. Henry Blackwell, Lucy Stone's husband, had promised that he had made all the arrangements, but when she got to uh, Kansas, a man's idea of having made all the arrangements and a woman's idea of having made all the arrangements seemed not to agree. She had to arrange all her own travel, She personally had to hire halls. She had to do the advertising for her presentations. I'm I'm glad the man had done all the arrangements. But in her four months in Kansas, she made 300 speeches. Susan B. Anthony, reflecting on it, said that this was the glorious triumph of 1867. And the only challenge to that glorious triumph was the fact that the vote went down two to one. But the women's movement felt that for the first time that they had really organized a powerful response, a powerful call for women to be fully equal to men in terms of voting. And uh, that gave Olympia a sense that she needed a larger platform than Weymouth, Massachusetts. And so Bridgeport, Connecticut was open. It was a congregation that was not sure it was going to survive. It had a big building. It had some very important individual members, but it had lost a sense of purpose. It had lost a sense of what its mission might be in the world. What Olympia said was, unlike my Weymouth people, Bridgeport had no breadth of vision. She was lucky in Bridgeport, number one, to be very successful in her ministry and to actually give a sense of mission to a church in a growing, uh, vital uh, New England city. But she was lucky also to meet the man of her life, John Henry Willis. Willis, who supported her in everything, was totally devoted to her and to every cause that she imagined getting involved in. Her first child, John Parker Willis, was born in 1874, and something happened. I don't know if this would happen in a church these days, but while she was on maternity leave, people tried to organize to get her not to come back. There were a number of people who, as the church became successful, became a little embarrassed that they had a woman woman in the pulpit. And a respectable church should have a tall man with a booming voice who probably went to Harvard. And so there was some struggle in the congregation. Actually, it would have been Tufts for them, but that's another story. P.T. Barnum, was one of her biggest supporters. P.T. Barnum was the biggest financial contributor to the Bridgeport Universalist congregation. And P.T. Barnum said, no way anybody is gonna get you out of the pulpit. So she stayed and continued to work both in women's suffrage and in building that congregation. And then she became pregnant again. And when she was pregnant again, she said, you know what? It ain't worth it for me to risk the kind of stuff that happened a couple years ago. So I think I'm going to use this as my opportunity to retire from full-time ministry. Gwendolyn Brown-Willis was born uh, during the period of Gwendolyn's infancy. Uh, Olympia learned everything she could about the family business. She really... um, She already had shown a lot of executive functions. She already knew how to organize all kinds of things. And now she was trying to get in a little more with the entrepreneurial spirit of her husband, the businesses that he owned, and the possibilities of having a part-time ministry that was financially supportable by other work that she might be doing. So, um, she retired from her call, but in 1876, discovered that there was another congregation that was willing to take a chance on what her gifts was, and that was in Racine, Wisconsin. Again, a congregation that was reported to be on the verge of closing, and yet she had a sense that going there, working with her husband on the businesses that they would be running, and working with the people of Wisconsin around women's suffrage, and in the Midwest around women's suffrage, reminiscent in some way of her work in Kansas that um, she'd have a chance to do something very new both in and out of the church and indeed one of the things that their family did was they bought the uh, Racine Times call newspaper and so she had a much larger voice than just what could happen in the pulpit by 1885 her heart had been so convicted of the cause of women's suffrage, that she decided to resign from Racine after nine years and to just take part-time pulpit supply in small churches in Wisconsin, but then to devote herself full-time to women's rights. In the 1890s, there were people who were complaining that the women's movement was languishing Um, she was certainly one of the people asking, what's the next step for women's suffrage? And she was overjoyed when in 1913, the Women's Party was established. A confrontational, streetwise party that saw that, because of course what you're asking is for men to vote, to change the laws, to allow women to vote, that the women had to show profound power and there was a tendency among some to say well women will teach their sons and their sons will grow in a particular way and by 1913 the women's party said no, we we need vote, we need it now and they began a series of large uh, vigils and demonstrations including uh, the burning of the words of Woodrow Wilson in front of the White House um, which um, Well, that takes a little bit of gumption. Um, It certainly got attention, and it began to be the turnaround for the women's movement as far as um, uh, Olympia Brown was concerned. This, of course, is getting close to the time when she's about to start living half-time in Baltimore and half-time in Racine, and Racine making sure the family businesses were kept together and going, but in Baltimore, going to this place Washington DC where she could actually have a presence among the Congress calling them to uh, a new understanding of what it means to be a voter well so my question this morning is this was Olympia Brown a political leader or a spiritual leader we had a little conversation about this last week with with uh, new people coming to the church newly um, uh, had we had brunch uh, last Sunday, and, and this is a question that was raised, and I've been thinking about it all week. This is a kind of question we hear even today, even in this church, ask: Is the content of our liberal faith, excuse me, our liberal faith and liberal spirituality, on the one? Uh, About faith or politics, are we a community of faith and spirituality on the one hand, or are we a place of politics, of ethical and moral action, of liberal notions of social justice? Unitarian Universalism has long argued that liberal religion requires that each of us is responsible for our own spiritual development. We have seldom argued that it was the specific teachings of the church that could give any of us the right answers to life's persistent questions. Our church is open to the questions that each of us brings, and we share the provisional answers that many of us have found. We are a spiritual community because we insist that the transformative work of spiritual growth is open to any and all of us, and is even required of any and all of us. In the middle of the 20th century, it was A. Powell Davies in DC who would declare that life is just a chance to grow a soul. Our liberal faith is convinced that we are about development, that the answers we accept as a child need to be changed when we're a teenager, or as a young adult, or as a young parent, or as a person at the height of their career or as a person suddenly confronting joblessness or homelessness or deprivation of other sorts. Our answers change when we become a person caring for our parents. Our answers change as we are a person of any age facing our mortality. The human soul is changed by the experiences of the human life. We are spiritual people when we make meaning of our lives, when we confess openly to the challenges we face, the incompleteness and dissatisfaction that we encounter, the joy we come to learn, the success we find along the way. We are a people, a whole people on a journey together, we've been saying. And we are people crossing borders. That's a developmental story. These spiritual statements are about taking life one day at a time. About knowing ourselves inside and out. About trusting that there is a spark in each of us which guides us in living a life that is spiritual. We profess the inherent worth and dignity of every individual, our principles say. But we don't say that the work of each individual is yet complete. We encourage encourage each other to grow in our capacity, to exhibit our worth, to embody our dignity. We can do it. And we must do it. Rabbi Hillel, in the last century before the Common Era, asked, If I am not for myself, who will be? We are each responsible for ourselves, for our spirituality, for our souls. And yet Rabbi Hillel went on to say, If I am only for myself, who am I? This then addresses the other part of our question. What does it mean to be a people in community? What does it mean that we live in a place where we make judgments, where we make political calls, where we strive for social justice, where we indeed address politics? None of us is only for ourselves. We shouldn't be and we actually can't be because we also affirm the, our respect for the interdependent web of existence of which we are a part, each of us. That's a very political statement, that this web of creation in which we find ourselves involve all kinds of agents that make decisions that affect others, that affect the whole web. It was Dr. King who said, We are all tied together in a single garment of destiny, an inescapable network of mutuality. I can never be what I ought to be until you are allowed to be who you ought to be. This is a statement of politics and of justice, and I believe Olympia Brown would say spirituality. The freedom in my life, that allows me to grow my soul comes because of the conditions of my life. My search for freedom for someone else is a statement, I think, of my sense of their spirituality and mine. Political or spiritual, I think the answer must be both. My mentor, Reverend Dr. Jack Mendelssohn, taught me this and I think it still has meaning in my life. I call the process of discernment between the essential and non-essential things in life the spiritual. That discerning process is spirituality. In my daily quiet time when I meditate on my life and where I sit with lists of names of people in this very room and call their concerns To my attention in prayer, I try to discern between what seems essential and what seems not essential just now. I think of my own worries and I try to release the concerns that are just not so important. I strive to find among the long things of things that need to be done, those essential two or three things, four things maybe, that I'll be able to really work on during the day this sorting of my life this judging of my thoughts and actions, my relationships and my concerns, this is my spiritual work and then from time to time I stand on the edge of the sea, thank you for my vacation in July I get to stand under the stars, I get to look at the waning moon or even to look at a sea of people out speaking their truth. And I get to see the size of the world and the smallness of me. I get to marvel about how wonderful it is to be so unimportant in the face of it all and also how alive I can feel, how grateful I am. that when finally I quiet my spirit down and when I can imagine what it would be like to live beyond my worries beyond my anxieties and nervousness, beyond my addictions beyond my unhealthy patterns of living, beyond my fear that at the center of my consciousness when everything is quieted down is something that I know as love love for my family and my friends, love for the people of this church, love for this city in which we live love for the black lives that matter, the queer black lives and the old black lives, the lead poisoned lives of black children the black trans lives how that love that I intuit in my person reaches out through me and my little life how astonishing to me it is that there is a love at the center of this immense universe that the Universalists said speaks to and communes with all of us even now in its poetry and my anthropomorphism. The 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution was adopted in August of 1920. In the months following, Olympia Brown spoke of the changes that had taken place since her resignation as minister. She says, quote, the grandest thing has been the lifting up of the gates and the opening of the doors to the women of America, giving liberty to 27 million women, thus opening to them a new and larger life and a higher ideal." and quotation. This opening up, is it political or is it spiritual? In her preaching she also testified to the importance in her life of this universalism and universal love. The words she spoke nearly a hundred years ago, I deliver it to you for your consideration. And ask, spiritual? Political? I will say yes, yes, yes. The faith in which we have lived, for which we have worked, and which has bound us together as a church, dear friends, stand by this faith work for it and sacrifice for it. There is nothing in all the world so important to you as to be loyal to this faith, which has placed before you the loftiest ideal, which has comforted you in sorrow, strengthened you for the noble duty, and made the world beautiful for you. Dear friends, stand by this faith. Blessed be. Amen.